0: If you have your Bibles. Uh, We're back in Exodus today. Um, Exodus chapter 4 primarily. Mostly Exodus chapter 4. I I want to start this morning um, in an unusual way. I I want to explain to you or or point out what I'm not going to be talking about this morning Uh, because it, it would be distracting to me if I heard this sermon and was like, dude, you didn't deal with the two weirdest things, right? So, so here's the first interesting thing that happens Not that we're not gonna deal with today. In 421, it, it says this, just, I'm just gonna read you a verse. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There's this, this little phrase, I, I will harden his heart, that we moderns have a, maybe struggle with, just so you know, like Moses and like nobody at the time would have had trouble with it, and we're going to talk about it because right? it, ha- it comes up repeatedly in Exodus in the next few chapters, so we're just not going to talk about it today, And not that I'm, I'm, I'm not running away from that very hard phrase, we're going to talk about it, just not today. There's another passage, group of verses we're not going to talk about this morning, uh, or, or probably ever on a Sunday morning, it, it, because it's just the weirdest. It might be the weirdest verses in the Bible. I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty, it's up there. If it's not the weirdest, top five. Uh, and, and here's, let me just read it to you, and then I'll explain why. Because why. If, I, if I was hearing this sermon, I'd be like, dude, surely he's going to talk about this. No, I am not. Here's why. So uh, Moses is on his way back to, uh, uh, back to uh, Egypt in verse 24, out of nowhere, like right after that part. He's going to go back and, and he tells him what he's going to do. And then there's, just, there's these, I'm just going to read these verses. Uh, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I, I don't know. That's the short answer. short answer. I don't know, but I'm in good company. I'm in good company, not knowing. Uh, as I've been researching and studying for months, like about like what like, walking through Exodus. Basically, everybody since the earliest writings we have from Jewish uh, 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 rabbis about this text, they're all like, mm. like I don't know. I, so, if you want to talk about this. I got ideas. Like I can give you hints. It just doesn't fit in today's sermon, but I don't want you to think that I am unaware that it's odd, because I hope you're reading through this with me. I think it has something to do with circumcision and the tie, and and then Moses being out of the land and coming back to the land, and and then there's just this this hints of of blood, and I think there's difficulties in translating. I mean, who is the hymn referring to? Is it Moses or his son? Like, I don't know, man. It's just weird. I think it's just difficult. How about that? And so that could be discouraging to some people. I'm actually encouraged by it, and here's why. Uh, If I were editing this, I'd have just cut those verses out. It's encouraging to me that they were like, well, no, it's the word of the Lord. We're going to leave it in here and just wonder about it for several thousand years. I think probably what happened is we just lost I think that probably I think other people read it early on. I'm like, oh well, this makes sense. Blood you know, bride, bridegroom of blood. Sure, of course. And we just maybe lost that. There's some translation difficulties there as well, tied to some things that maybe were in their head that are not in ours. It doesn't change anything theologically for us. I think it does really just just hint to some things that are that are about to happen. It has to do with his line, the child needed to be circumcised, who's in Midian, brought back into Egypt. I, I, like because it's just a really weird idea that God calls Moses to do this thing and then on the way to do the thing God tries to kill him? Like, that's just crazy, right? But I, I, it's there, it's important. I just don't want you to be distracted by the fact that I'm not going to talk about it today. You want to have lunch, or you want to email me, I'll send you articles all about what people think about it. We're just not going to deal with it today. I just don't want it to be a distraction any more than it already has been. Let's start the sermon now. That time does not count. So here's where we are. We're in this story in Exodus. Uh, Exodus is this... It's this narrative, right? It's a story about this thing that God has done. And here's, here's one of the reasons that it's so important to us is because it's in Exodus that we learn this foundational thing about God's nature, Uh, Which is that he is a God who saves his people, acts inside of time and space on behalf of his people to accomplish their salvation, and that he fulfills the promises that he has made. That We learn this foundational thing about the nature of God, which is he saves undeserving people that are struggling and suffering. That's it. It's so foundational, and we see so much. It's so rich because it's told in this story. It, it, it's, back in Genesis, we hear this story about how God is going to save the whole world. He has this plan that he's going to redeem everybody. He's going to bless the whole world through the descendants of this guy named Abraham. And so that promise just follows his family line. It goes from Abraham to his son Isaac, and from Isaac to his son Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel, so it's kind of confusing. When sometimes if you're reading the Bible, it sounds like Jacob is a nation. Well, be, yeah, like Jacob and Israel, those are names are, are used kind of interchangeably. So you have this nation of Israel, his 12 sons. They end up out of the land that God promised Abraham that he, would, he was going to have, and they end up in this land of Egypt, through this amazing story, this guy named Joseph, one of his uh, Jacob's sons, they end up in Israel. God rescues them by bringing sorry end up in Egypt. God rescues them by bringing them down to Egypt during a famine. And then over time, one of the things that God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation, it begins to happen. It's not in the land, but it begins to happen inside of Egypt. They become numerous. They just, over generations, they just become really numerous. And the pharaoh, the king of the land, doesn't remember. They have a new, a new king, a new ruler, and he doesn't remember this Joseph that was so important to the saving Egypt. He just looks around and sees all of these, this immigrant group that are becoming really numerous. And he begins to become nervous about it. So he decides he's going to, he says he's going to deal with them shrewdly, right? Uh, he's very much painted in the beginning of Exodus as this snake, Right? almost like the one that we saw in the garden uh, that tries to manipulate and, and control and, and trick God's people to try, uh, that, that instead of blessing them, and, and he decides to curse them instead. So he, he just, he, he enslaves them. And then they keep growing more numerous. And so he tells uh, this group of people, this, this group of women, hey, listen, don't, when they have a baby, don't, don't kill all the boys, uh, and that doesn't work because they, the Egyptian servants, they, they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And so um, they make excuses. And then through the bravery of these this two Israelite women and, and Pharaoh's own daughter, this guy named Moses, this baby named Moses is, is rescued out of the water and saved, uh, even though he's, Pharaoh's commanded that all of the babies be thrown into the Nile. All the, all the baby boys, male boys, male boys, all the male boys, anyway, all the baby boys are thrown into the Nile. He floats down this river into Pharaoh's own house. And, and so that's what's happening. And Moses grows up. This guy named Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. Uh, and one day, he, he just knows. Right? He knows that he is an Israelite, that his, his brothers, is, he's a descendant of this guy named Abraham. And he sees them being enslaved. And he just kind of grows up without a home. He commits a crime, kills this guy, has to flee because Pharaoh's trying to kill him. And he ends up in Midian. He's been in Midian for 40 years or so when chapter 3 happens. He's probably about 80 years old. And he's just a sheep herder. He's keeping sheep for his father-in-law. And one day he's wandering around the desert uh, and he comes near what's called the, the uh, mountain of God. And he sees this really weird thing. He sees a bush on fire, but it's not burning and so he, he comes near, and it's God appearing to him. This is, uh, the fancy word is theophany. It's an appearance of God. Somehow God making his presence known. God, who is outside of time and space, through time and space, who is everywhere, somehow makes to those of us trapped in time and space, his presence known to them. And the way that he makes his presence known is, is to Moses is through a bush that's not burning. And there's a bush that's on fire, but not burning. And so there's a lot of debate about what this means. Uh, this is a side note, too. This is, this is the second one of the morning. What about this? You get to the end of Exodus and this amazing thing happens. They built this tabernacle and God descends on a cloud and all the people are afraid. God says, like, hey, listen, I'm going to come live among you. And the people are like, no, hard pass on you living among us because we've seen you descend on the mountain like a fire and you're consuming fire. How would you come and live in the midst of us? And Leviticus is kind of the answer to that question. Like, how is a holy God going to dwell in our midst? A God who's Fire consumes all that is not righteous and pure. How, all that is not holy, how, it, just, it, it, it gets rid of it because he can't have that because he's just so holy and pure. How is that God going to live in the middle of us sinners without consuming us? I wonder if this little, this little visit to this mountain and this bush burning is kind of a picture of that. I am a God who consumes but makes ways for, you, makes ways for me to be in your midst without consuming you. I wonder if that's just a hint. I, I, I don't know, but it makes me think about like God in our midst, God in our life. How does He exist in our hearts? How can He live in my life with my sinful heart without consuming me? I think the story is going to unfold further, and we're going to find out it has to do with sacrifice. But I think I mean I know that's what's going to happen. So anyway, uh, he, the God caught, sees him on this mountain. and he speaks to him out of this bush. And so Moses comes near and God says like, you're on the holy ground. So take off your shoes. And so he begins to talk to him. So I'm going to start in three, but I know, I know that we're going to go through four, but I want to start in three because what happens here uh, next, what happens next in God's talking to Abraham is, or sorry, in talking to Moses is very fascinating. Uh, God says to him in verse 7, this is three, chapter 3, I've seen the affliction of my people, I've heard them crying, I know they're suffering, and I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to take them out of the hand of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians, I'm going to take them to the promised land, and I, I'm going to rescue them, and Pharaoh is going to oppose me, but it's not going to matter, and, and you're going to go do this. And, this is and then verse 11, Moses says this, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He asks a very legitimate question. I hear what you're saying and I'm all for you delivering my brothers and my sisters in Egypt out from the land of Pharaoh. I'm for that. What does that have to do with me? Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm an 80 year old man wandering around the desert with a bunch of sheep. Like what, what does that have to do with me? And, and then, listen, God answers. There's so much God talking in this. We think this is about Moses, but like, it's so much of God just unfolding what he says. He says, he just, he says you know, what uh, what does that have to do with me? I, who am I? Like, I grew up in Pharaoh's house, but not that Pharaoh's, and the Egyptians rejected me. Not only that, I, I tried to save my people one time. I tried to do good for them and, and for the Israelites, but, but they rejected me. Like, why would you send me back? If there's anybody there, back there, that remembers me, they remember me as the guy who murdered an Egyptian, buried him in the desert, and ran from Pharaoh. That's what I'm known for. Who am I to go and talk to them? I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not a Pharaoh. I'm a sojourner in a foreign land. Why would you send me? And this is what God's response to this. He says, "He says, it's so good. It's so good. Verse 12. He says, but I'll be with you. Then Moses says this. Like, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to even say? I think this has to do, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. I think this has to do with, so what? Like, if I go tell them God sent me, like, who what am I going to tell them that you have to say? How are you going to reveal themselves? And God gives his name in this moment. Uh, I am, is what he says. I am. I am Yahweh. Moses says, who am I? And God says, "Like I'm, I, I'm going to be with you. And I, I am, I am. I am the God who is, who was, and who will always be, I'm going to do these things. And he, un- he lays out again this long explanation of what he's going to do, of how he's going to deliver the people, how he's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to drive out the people ahead of them when he brings them to the promised land. He's going to do all of these things. He says, Moses, they're going to listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel, they're going to go to the king of Egypt and, they're going to, and you're going to say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days into the journey that we may sacrifice to our God. But I know the king of Egypt. He'll not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I'm gonna do in it. And after that, he'll let you go. I will give this people favor in your sight of the Egyptians. And when they go, they're not gonna go out empty. Every single woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And you're gonna plunder the Egyptians. He says, this is what you go. This is who I am. I am the God who will lead you out by my mighty hand. I'll be opposed by Pharaoh but it won't matter at all. Not only are you going to go out, not only are they going to listen to you, not only am I going to take you to the promised land, but you're not going to go empty-handed. You're going to actually plunder the Egyptians on the way out. You're just going to ask for stuff, and they're going to give it to you, and you're going to fill your pockets with it, and walk out of this land. That is what I'm going to do. That is who I am. That's what you go tell them. And then chapter 4, Moses' response. Then Moses said, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord did not appear to you. This is what he says. He says, I'm going to go to them and I'm going to say, hey, uh, God appeared to me and spoke to me, and they're going to say, okay, yeah, whatever, Moses. They're going to think I'm a crazy person, and I got to be honest, I'm not so sure I'm not. I'm talking to a burning bush. I might be losing my mind. You want me to go back there and just say, hey, I talked to God and he came and told me told told me to tell you these things they're not going to believe me which i would argue is a very reasonable objection a stranger shows up that's been gone for 40 years like oh you've been wandering around the desert for 40 years tending sheep and god spoke to you we believe you this is what god says the lord said to him what is that in your hand and he said a staff And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. Uh, uh, It uh, it became a serpent. Uh, And Moses ran from it. Sounds like a hero, doesn't he? But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it by the tail. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said, put out your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. Put his hand back inside his cloak. And then he took it out and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If They will not believe you," God said. "Or listen to the first sign; they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe either, even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." He says, "Listen. If you, if I go back, what am I going to do? What, they're not going to believe me." And God says, "I'll give you signs. I'll give you signs. When you do the signs, they'll believe that you're from me." Okay. And this one, Moses responds. (laughs) Uh, I made that. That's not in the text. I'm I'm assuming that's how Moses did it. Uh, Oh, my Lord, uh, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? what who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind is it not i the lord now therefore go and and i will be with your mouth and i'll teach you what you shall speak and moses said oh my god oh my lord would you just please send somebody else I love this. Like he has all these reasonable excuses. Like, they're not going to believe me. Like, who am I? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the right guy. And then he comes back and he's like, hey, like, I'm, I'm going to be with you. And he says, you know what? They're not going to believe me. Like, like, who am I going to tell you? Who am I going to? What am I going to say that you're going to do? And he explains what he's going to do. And Moses is like, right, yeah, okay. But they're not going to believe me. And God's like, I'm going to give you signs so they'll believe you. And Moses says, right, right, yeah. I'm just not real good at talking. Words, me, good, no, together. And God's like, I made your mouth. Like, If I'm going to send you to do a thing, I'll be with your mouth. I'll tell you what to say. I didn't ask you to write a speech. And then Moses just says this. Yeah, I I don't want to. Could you just, just pick somebody else? Go be with their mouth. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, So this is the calling of Moses, God calling him from, his one, from one life and sending him somewhere else. And so he, Moses has all of these objections. I love how chapter four starts. Chapter four starts with him saying, look, they're not going to believe me. This is insane. Uh, and uh, they're going to tell me that, like, yeah, God did not appear to you. And God says, what's that in your hand? I love the start of that chapter four Uh, because three and four go together uh, and we're getting into the heart of Moses's objections to this whole thing. And he says like, what's this in your hand? And Moses goes, it's a staff. And I think, I I wonder if like that moment, like (laughs) Moses is like, it's a staff, man, because hand means like, what are you able to do? It's your hand is your, in the Bible is your capacity, your ability. We still say that today, right? Like, how did you do this? I did it with my own two hands right? It means I accomplished it myself. I I, I built it. I I made it. I did this within the power given to me. I was able to do this. And so God says, hey, Moses, what's in your hand? And he goes, it's just a stupid stick, man. This is my point. Like there was a time when I was in fighting shape 40 years ago. But since then, I've been wandering around the desert with this stupid stick. It's a stick for nudging sheep, not for talking to Pharaoh. Like I'm an old man and you want me to go on this trip and talk to Pharaoh? Why would he even see me? I don't think my own brothers and sisters will listen to me. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Like, don't you see what I'm capable of? I want you to look at me and what my capacity is. I am just a shepherd. I wanted to be something else one day, but this is all I am. And then God goes on and he performs these signs uh, that he's going to go show the Israelites so that they'll believe him. And these just seem like little magic tricks at first, right? Put your hand in your cloak, take it out. It's different. Uh, uh, uh. Like it seems like a little magic trick, you know? Uh, Stick becomes snake because sticks look like snakes, you know? Pour out water, it becomes blood or milk, whatever. They seem like little magician tricks, except for this. They also seem to kind of be hints about what's about to happen. So it's pretty well known uh, in the, that part of the world at that time, uh, even in scripture, but in other cultures as well, the snake was crafty. It was a, uh, it was a wise creature. As a matter of fact, if you kind of like Google pharaohs, that big kind of gold thing's going to show up, right? Like that big headdress, and there will be a cobra on the, hood, on the, on the top of it. Uh, it was a powerful thing. And we've already been introduced to pharaoh as a serpent, like creature he's he's crafty like the serpent in scripture so he looks at Moses and he says throw that on the ground and Moses throws on the ground and it becomes a snake and Moses does the biblical thing and runs from it because snakes are terrifying according to the bible and so he runs from the snake and God says pick it up by the tail which by the way it's not the way you should pick up a snake that's how you get bit and he says, pick it up by the tail. And he picks it up by the tail, and it becomes a stick again. And it seems to almost like he's saying, hey, listen, I know it's just a stick in your hands, but in my hands, you're actually going to be able to control Pharaoh himself. You are going to tame and manage Pharaoh himself. I'm going to send you into the serpent's den to tame them. You are going to be able to pick him up by the tail, and he will not harm you. Because I am with you. And then he says to him, like, put your hand in your cloak, take it out, and it's leprous. And he puts it back in, and he's healed. It's almost like God's saying, hey, the power of disease and health and renewal, that's in my power. I'm the God who gives and takes away health. I'm the God who gives away and takes, takes away life. I know your hand looks like a dead man. I know that's what you feel like, but I am God. I will be with you. I will renew your strength. I will accomplish these things. These things are in my power, not yours. I know your hand is dead, but I can renew life. I know you can't do anything on your own. So in Egypt, Egypt is special—not just in the Bible, but like even in like what was like fourth or fifth grade, like you read that, you heard that like Egypt was special because it was the bread basket. That's what we were told. The bread basket of the Middle East is what I was taught when I was a kid. Because the Nile floods so regularly, and it doesn't just flood junk, it floods very fertile soil. So like, there was almost always, unless God brought a a famine, there's almost always food in Egypt. Egypt is a very important place in that area because of the regular flooding of the Nile. The Nile is the life source. And God says, I want you to go take just a a big jug of water from the the life source of the Nile, and I want you to dump it on the ground and watch it become blood. They think their power and their strength and their stability comes from the, the, the very life of Egypt is drawn from the Nile. I'm the one that gives life. Here's when this matters I think. I think Moses is rightly scared, rightly intimidated by what God is asking him to do, by the role he's asking him to play. Who am I? Why should it be me? Pharaoh? Don't you like? My best companion is Bob the Lamb. Like, that's who I talk to most days. And you want me to leave this setting and go talk to Pharaoh? His fears and his objections seem fair to me. And here's what God does. <laughs> he actually says this. He shows you these signs and says, you're going to go do it anyway. And then he says this. I think he's saying through these signs this. It's actually even bigger than you think. You think that I'm just sending you to handle Pharaoh? I'm not. I'm sending you to handle Pharaoh and the entire corrupt System that enslaves my people. Not only that, I'm, hand, I'm sending you because Pharaoh would have thought, Pharaoh by this time would have been considered a descendant of God. He was the incarnate or the defi- divine descendant of uh, the sun god, uh, Ra. So he would have been a God and he even says, that he, god, God's gonna send nine plagues against Egypt. That's the strong hand he's gonna bring against them. And af- after the ninth plague, God says to them, in the 10th plague, I'm not just going to take out Pharaoh. I'm not just going to take out Egypt. I'm taking out all of the false gods behind him. The battle that Moses is about to enter into is not just a battle with Pharaoh. It's not just a battle with the Israelites who don't want to listen to him. It's a battle behind the forces of evil that set up systems like Egypt It's a battle with the spiritual forces behind them because God is going to war not just with Pharaoh, but with the gods, the evil spirits that support all this. He's going to battle with all of this. Moses, you thought it was bad. It's even bigger than that. This is a spiritual war that's about to happen against the very heart of the lies of places like Egypt. This is it. So he calls him to this amazing, amazing thing. I realize at this point in the sermon, if you grew up in church, like your youth pastor preached a sermon like this, and the ending of this sermon was, now go out there and do great big things for God, right? Like that was, the, that's not where I'm going, by the way. That's not where this is going to end. Uh, uh, but I realize that's where it sounds like it's going, but it's not. But this is all true. So Moses does this thing. He sends him, and then this is what happens. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, look, I got to go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. I'm going to skip. Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And then verse. let's skip down to verse 27. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain, and God kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and, had, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshiped just a little bit of five. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. God comes, I, I am Yahweh. And Pharaoh says, I don't know this Yahweh. And even if I did, I do not care. I'm Pharaoh. We all have this... Listen, when we come to... I, I just wonder sometimes, a lot of the times, I, I, maybe this is just how old I am. I don't know, I think I've done this all my life. Wondered what I'm supposed to be doing. Like... W- if I am a Christian, if someone that wasn't a believer came to you and said, you're a Christian, and you went, yeah, and they said, what does that mean? I wonder what I would say. I, mean, oh, I think I would give the pro- a proper answer. It would mean that my only hope in life and in death is, is that I'm not my own, but belong uh, both in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for all of my sin. Right, I think I would say that, or something to the effect of, uh, it means that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And, and I could explain those things. And they would go, yes, 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 those are the things that you believe. What does that mean about your life? How do you live? H- how does that make how you live any different at all? And I think I've struggled with that. For a very long time, like how to answer, what difference does it make? If I am called to follow Christ, what is my life supposed to look like? And I've wrestled with that because there's, you know, I've spent time, it's like, well, you know, throwing away all my Led Zeppelin CDs, right? Like trying to just like look as holy as possible, right? Trying to do all the exact right things, not smoking and drinking or any of those things. I don't know. I don't know. Just doing the right things. And then I've spent time going like, you know what, it's not about things. It's not about doing things, you know. I'm saved by grace, not by works, so, you know, just do whatever. And just torn between these two places, of what does it mean to live and follow God? I mean, I kind of grew up where I was just thinking that like maybe there's just, here's a question, let me put it this way. Anybody in here called to be a missionary? To leave here and go to, like, uh, live in, uh, I don't know, Africa? Like, is it, is it, like, uh, anybody besides Matt, who we'll pray for in a minute? uh, Like, I mean, have you thought about that? Like, have you ever considered that? Like, what if God, like, I'm going to become a Christian. Could he ask me to go, like, across the world, away from my family and be in a place that I don't know? Like, I kind of grew up, there was a hierarchy in the way that I grew up, right? Like, there were, like, you, normal Christians, me me and you, normal Christians, and there were Sunday school teachers, like, right above that, you know? And then people who actually showed up on Sunday nights, like they were above them, you know? And then, you know, above that was like probably deacons maybe, no matter what they did, somehow they were right above that. And they smoked while they counted money outside, right? Uh, And then right above that were like ministers and pastors, you know? And then, like, missionaries are, like, way up here, right? And you're like, these are, like, super Christians that you'll never attain this level of, like, God asking you to do something this big, right? So you're just like, I guess I, if I want to do big things for God, I guess I have to do that, right? I kind of grew up, like, do I have to do something like Moses? Which, by the way, doesn't seem like a very heroic character, does he, <laughs> in this whole conversation? Uh... But the, what, am I, what is it that we are called to do? Because if you are a Christian, if you say I'm a follower of Jesus, then you're called. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, not many of you when you were called were wise in the ways of the world, but you were called to come and follow Jesus. So if you were called to follow Jesus, how does my life look any different than it did before? Should it look any different if it's not about works? I'm Just wondering what it is that my life is supposed to be. And here's what I think I learned from Moses. I read Moses and I'm like, well, I guess I got to do something big and I got to go. I think there's two dangers we can fall into. There's two big things we can, two big mistakes we can make. One is this, thinking that being called doesn't mean anything. Thinking that being a Christian doesn't mean you have anything to do with your life. The other mistake I think we can make is that I have to go somehow manufacture something big to do for God and accomplish it with my own hands. I think those are the two big mistakes that we can make. We can just fall into this religious works. Well, I guess I got to go do big things. So uh, growing up, it was like going to pass out tracks at the Galleria, and no matter how embarrassing that was, standing outside the record store, the tape store, tape, you're just passing out, just embarrassed. I standing, like, you know, if you really love Jesus, you'll just stand up on the lunchroom table and give your testimony in the middle of lunch and have people throw things at you. But it's a big thing for God. Like I felt like I had, to, and look, don't get me wrong. If God tells you to stand up on the lunchroom table, you should go ahead and do that. Like if God tells you, but is, I felt, I was manufacturing these things. These are things that I felt like I, I had to make some big grand gesture to prove to God that I, was gonna, that I wanted to be this super Christian. That's just legalism. That's just me trying to hold my salvation and look at God and go, don't you see all the big things I've done for you? What are you gonna do for me? And that is not the relationship we have with the living God. Then, also, you get to college and we're just sitting around in bars, drinking craft brews, smoking cigars, thinking how cool we are. Look at our parents who led us to Jesus. Uh, they don't understand grace, you know. You don't have to do anything. Moses is called, and he lays before him this big thing that he's going to do. But his message to Moses over and over again is not, Moses, you have to go do big things for me. His message to Moses over and over and over again is, all you have to do is obey. I'm going to do the rest. I need you to go to talk to the Israelites. They're not going to believe me. I'm going to be with you. Yeah, but like go to Pharaoh. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? You're the one that has me with you. I just need you to go do the thing I said. Hey, I can't lead the people out of Egypt. No one asked you to, Moses. I'm going to do that hey I, I, but how am I I just need you to obey Moses and he pushes him and pushes pushes. he offers him this weird grace though right he, like he gets mad at him you know and it's like instead of asking somebody else he's like fine I'll send your brother Aaron with you which seems like this beautiful thing I think it's this grace and this God just meeting us in our weakness to accomplish a thing right also by the way doesn't turn out great Aaron causes some problems in the next few chapters um, and also now he has to split the, kind of the glory with, with, with Aaron Interesting, right? But it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is this. He calls Moses to just obey and watch what I do. There's gonna come this beautiful moment, this beautiful moment in Exodus where they're standing there and, and, and before, and God says everybody's freaking out because the Egyptians are coming. The most powerful nation on earth is coming after them. And God says this to them. Like, what are we supposed to do? And God says, I want you to stand still and watch me. Look, Sometimes God moves people across the world, away from their friends and family. Sometimes God asks us to do things that are embarrassing and difficult. Sometimes, a lot of times, God pushes us out of our comfort zone. A lot of times, what he asks us to do seems too big. You want me to love my neighbor as myself? You want me to forgive someone who has wounded me deeply? You want me to be a part of the body of Christ? You want me to lay down my life to love others? You want me to be a participant in bringing about the new creation? Who am I? Nobody's going to listen to me. And I have all of these excuses why I don't simply obey. I have all of these excuses why I don't just do the thing that God has placed in front of me in this moment and trust that through my obedience, it's going to be something that he uses to bring about the renewal of everything. It might be moving across the world. He might ask you to move to Mississippi and be a child's minister. Please, no. He might ask you to do something terrible that you're just afraid of and and, and you can't imagine doing. Or he might ask you to do something even more terrifying, which is be vigilant because we fight against powers and principalities of this present age with our prayers. He might ask you to love your spouse by laying down your life when when you could have more for yourself, when you deserve more and you just lay down your life to love them anyway. When you love your children and you raise them up to be disciples of Jesus, even though you could travel more or whatever. When your neighbor is at work and the cubicle across the street, across the, across the way is just so grumpy and miserable and you actually just pray for them and figure out how do I love that person well today and those things like, feel like nothing. They feel like small little things and God says, would you just obey me and see what I do? Not everybody's story is like Moses. These big, grand things. There are other people like, the story that I use all the time as an illustration and I don't even feel bad about it. Uh, Naomi. I love Naomi's story so much. She's just obedient. And God does this amazing thing, and at the end of the story, she's holding this child. Uh, this, she, just long, she just thought she had lost everything, and God blesses her, and her, her, her daughter-in-law has this, this, this baby with this man, and she's holding this child, and at the end of the story, you think, man, look how God has done great things for Naomi, and then there's this last sentence, this last verse in, in, the, in that book, and it says this, it says, and that was the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. She was just being obedient and loving people well, being obedient and following God. And God somehow decides that he's going to bring the Savior of the world into the world through this child that she's holding. She never even knows about it. What God does with our simple obedience is unbelievable. We may not get to see it, it may turn out like Moses. I don't know. I know that the safest place for us is in God's will because he is with us. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, go wrestle with what that means. When he says, love your enemy, wrestle with what that means. When he says, forgive, wrestle with what that means. But here's the thing. We do not do it with the strength of our own hand, but by the power of Christ inside of us. We don't figure out how to just summon up forgiveness inside of us. Instead, we go to God, we go to Him in prayer, and He reminds us that He forgave us and we didn't deserve it. And He breaks our heart, and he humbles us, and he lets us see that, yes, we live in a broken and fallen world, and what He did, and one of the ways that his gospel, one of the ways that what He has done for us goes forward in the world, is when we simply forgive people who don't deserve it. Love them anyway doesn't sound like the parting of the Red Sea, does it? But God has promised that he's bringing about his will and his creation in these ways. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called. God has something for you. He's given you purpose. He's given you, reason, given you a reason to be. And it's because he's working in your heart and around you to accomplish his will. He is doing that through his church, through his people. You get to be a part of that if it's just being obedient by folding clothes and loving your family well if it's just by going to a job that you don't particularly love but it provides for you and your family if it's just by saying you know what i would rather do this but instead i'm going to show up for small group whatever it is this simple obedience of building rhythms into our life that point us to christ i don't know what he's going to do but i know it's this i know this it's going to be amazing generations later hey man, the church was in decline in in America. It looked like it was gonna be nowhere, but somehow God did this amazing thing and we'll know big names, but we'll never hear the names of the people who sat in the back and just prayed. We'll never get the list of the people who worked in the nursery, but it's through those things that God will bring about his creation. Isn't that amazing that we get to participate in that? That God has just chosen to work through us instead of just sidelining us, but he brings us into his family. It makes us part of that, and that is a beautiful, beautiful gift. He calls us and He sends us, and what He asks of us is that we obey and trust in His power to accomplish. Let's pray. Father, give us courage. Give us eyes to see that you are in Christ making all things new, and that when we say that we're a follower of Jesus, that we've been called to participate in your work, in your salvific work of changing the world. And that when we commit to having Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we give our lives to him, we're not just saved out of something, we are saved into something. Into a purpose, into a plan, into a family. And what we have to do to accomplish these things is love you with our entire heart all of our strength all of our mind to love you to obey you to trust you even when our eyes look like there's no way we can accomplish the thing that you've asked us to do to be vigilant in serving to be vigilant in prayer because we fight against the powers and principalities of this present age who are looking to derail us to love each other to fight for unity. You have called us to these things for our own good. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us the eyes to see what you've called us to and what you've sent us for. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.